overlooking Phoenix. From high above in the Star Worldwide Network Studios, Badge Boys. Stories, insight, guests, and true blue humor with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. And now, here they are, the Badge Boys. Welcome back to another edition of the Badge Boys, a show where two cops talk to the community. I'm retired silent witness Sergeant Darren Birch. I'm retired Phoenix Police Officer Jason Schechterly. And on the show, we're going to have the author of Creating the Declaration of Independence, this constitutional litigator, uh, political science major, prosecutor for Cook County, Illinois, wrote an incredible book. So we're going to talk about the backstory to the architects of the Independence of Declaration. We're also going to go into cop talk. We're going to talk about body cams and the need, pros and cons, and then we're we're going to end the last segment, my favorite, where I get to listen to Jason Sheckley do his uh, close, that inspirational close that always makes me cry. Me and too. Right? And then we're going to have stupid suspect stories, heroic headlines, and so much more. So stay tuned, stay informed, and most of all, you're going to be entertained. More stories, inside guests, and true blue humor coming up on Batch Boys. We'll be back right after this. Sagicor Life Insurance Company, Scottsdale, Arizona. Hey, this is the Mayor Dave Pratt. You know, my dad taught me a lot of stuff, like never dry my clothes in the microwave, never swing on a 3-0 and pitch, or how the right shirt collar will disguise a clip-on tie. <laughs> he also used to say, Son, there's only one thing for certain, and that is, life is uncertain. Well, you know he's right. Accidents happen, life happens, health changes. It's too late to get life insurance if you wait until you need it. Getting life insurance today can provide peace of mind. Look, this is how much I believe in Sagicor Life Insurance. I'm inviting you to my own broadcast studios to meet with them. Or we'll come to your place of work. I might even bring donuts. Protect your family. Go to SagicorLifeUSA.com. Sagicor Life. Wise financial thinking for life. This is a paid endorsement. Products not available in all states. Sagicor is not licensed in Alaska, Connecticut, Maine, and New York. Move over, AZ. Arizona's move over law requires you to move over or slow down when you drive past any vehicle pulled over with flashing lights. Remember, every vehicle, every time. Move over, AZ. Sponsored by ADOT in partnership with the Arizona Broadcasters Association and this station. You're listening to Batch Boys with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Now, back to the Batch Boys. Welcome back to uh, what I would consider one of our special, special shows. It is the Independence Day special. And for that, we have a great guest. And uh, Jason, I got to ask you, do you do LinkedIn? Do you connect with people on LinkedIn? Oh, very much so. I love LinkedIn. I do too, my friend. Uh, and that's where I met this gentleman. His name is David Sistokis, and he is a prosecutor. And of my 10,000 connections on LinkedIn, I would say 90 5% are either military, police, prosecutors. Uh, we will even accept lawyers. So <laughs> without, <laughs> I, I, couldn't, I couldn't help it, David. So without further ado, let me introduce you to David Shostokis. Sir, thank you for being on our show. Darren, Jason, it's really, really great to be with you. But I would uh, caution you just one second that to be a prosecutor, you have to be a lawyer. <laughs> oh, why? Don't deflate our balloon. You know, no, we're not, they're two different things. We're not going to two different things, and we're not going to hold that against you, sir. We're not. <laughs> you know, I have to say, I read your book, and when we met on LinkedIn, I uh, saw you wrote this book, and I went, and I'm, I love history. And when I read this book, it has to be the best 
book on the Declaration of Independence I've ever read. And reason being is you give such a great backstory to these incredible heroes of our our nation. And sometimes I think we forget uh, with the barbecues and the family get-togethers, which is so nice, and, and the, you know, the fireworks that we celebrate at night. But I think sometimes we forget about these heroes that really li- risked life, liberty, oh, and truly death, defying to defy this British rule. Um, so I thank you for being on the show. And can you just talk a little bit about what made you want to write this book? Well, for about... That's a long backstory by itself. It right. Probably ten, probably 10 years in the making. Uh, but I had uh, done a Constitution Day presentation at a high school in Southwest Florida. And I started out by asking the, this American, sophomore American history class what year the country was founded. And the first answer I got was 1700. The next one I got was 1800. Eventually, we zeroed in on 1776. And I then had to say, okay, I thought I'd give them something easier. I said, okay, what day was it? And it took a long time until I finally had to go. Uh, Hot dogs, hamburgers, barbecue, fireworks, and they go, oh, 4th of July. Uh, And the kids in a sophomore American history class about 10 years ago did not even know that July 4th, 1776 was the country's birthday, if you will. And that sent me on a bit of a journey where I started doing the writing about the Constitution for an online magazine, turned into my own website, and turned into my own radio show that I did for about three years out of Southwest Florida and uh, in Naples and Tampa, that area. And for the show, we did a we did promos uh, during the week, because I did the show on the weekends, and we did promos during the week, and during the week, I'd, we'd ask a question like, what did Jefferson mean by all men are created equal? And I'd answer that in 60 seconds as part of the promo. It was called A Minute of Constitutionally Speaking. And so that turned into my first book. I collected 150 uh, essentially questions and answers about the founding documents and put them together into Constitutional Soundbites, which was my first book. And when I got done with that, I found out that there was 140 references to the Declaration of Independence. And I went, oh, my goodness, everybody talks about the Constitution, and they swear fealty to it, and you guys took an oath to it. I've taken uh, eight constitutional oaths during the course of my career, and yet you can't really understand the Constitution if you don't know the Declaration of Independence. And so I said, I've got to try and do something about that. And uh, that the result was uh, creating the Declaration of Independence because, as you said, there's hot dogs and barbecues and there's a lot of nice things that we do on the Fourth of July, but unfortunately, like so many uh, so many holidays, it seems like we've lost the original meaning. Uh, we lost the original meaning of it, and it also seemed to me that the guys that are involved, uh, like Thomas Jefferson, there's the big Jefferson Memorial. People sometimes forget that he was actually flesh and blood. Uh, that he actually, you know, had hopes and dreams and thoughts and and, and prayers. Uh, the same thing goes with John Adams, uh, our second president, uh, who was instrumental in the, in this process. And and then there's a guy that hardly anybody ever heard of, uh, Richard Henry Lee. Uh, you might uh, might know him uh, a little bit better as the uncle of uh, Robert E. Lee. Uh, Confederate general, but uh, Richard Henry Lee was instrumental in this process as well, and and I think that it was it's really important for us to understand what these guys were going through when they were creating this country. 
uh, when they were doing something that never happened before. It never happened in human history. They turned 10,000 years of human history on its head, plus the dangers that, uh, that were involved. And I think we're going to talk a little bit about that. But these were flesh and blood people that had hopes and dreams. Uh, Richard Henry Lee had uh, lost his first wife and lost his fingers in a, in a hunting accident. And, uh, you know, these are, these are things that are, I think are important for people to, to, to make these folks personalized. Sir, this is Jason. Can you take us back for a second? I'm very interested to hear what is the 60-second definition of all men are created equal? Because there's two things that really come to mind when you, when you said that, that statement. First of all, in our crazy explosion of political correctness overload right now, it, you're not supposed to even say those terms anymore. But it always astounds me as I get older and... You know, I've probably learned about Independence Day. I'm pretty sure I knew it was July 4, 1776 when I was <laughs> in kindergarten. So how a sophomore in high school doesn't, doesn't know this is very upsetting. But what is your 60-second definition? What did they mean by that? Well, I can tell you that that's in my first book, Constitutional Soundbites. And if I might get a plug-in, you can, you can find it there. But I, in essence... It's uh, the important thing is is that people are equal under the law, and they are supposed to, and they have the opportunity for equal op- opportunity. It's not that uh, everybody has equal skills, equal equal gifts, but they're supposed to be treated equal under the law. The law is not to uh, indicate that anybody is better or worse than anybody else, and the fact that. And there's there's so many these days. Of course, they talk about all these separate groups. And of course, when you make a special accommodation for a group, you're making that group more equal than another group. And that's not what this is supposed to be about. Uh, and so, that's uh, you know, it's it's equality under in the eyes of the law. Everybody's supposed to be treated equally under the law, and they are born. They are born with those inalienable rights that we will talk about, to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Everybody has those when they're born. Uh, certainly, everybody has those uh, just coming into the world. And I think that's what uh, all men are created equal, because they're all created in the eyes of God. You know, there's uh, 55 words in the Declaration of Independence that that the book uh, concentrates on, but the last section of the book focuses on eight other words. And those eight other words are the law of nature and of nature's God, which serves to legitimize the United States. We're always talking about the rule of law and not the rule of men. Well, if we're going to have the rule of law and not the rule of men, then there has to be something that is greater than something that is created by men. The Constitution itself is created by men. So there has to be something greater, and Jefferson summed it up when he said that uh, we we're going to assume uh, our position among the powers of the world according to the laws of nature and of nature's God. And that is really, really indicative of a couple of things. You know, there has to be, the laws of nature are considered to be immutable, unchangeable, something that can't be changed by man. A legislature, you know, a legislature can go ahead and pass a law and vote that uh, gravity will have no effect within its territory. And, of course, 
that law doesn't mean anything, right? Because the uh, gravity has effect everywhere. It's a it's a simple natural law. Well, there's a you know there's a natural inclination of every human being of every living thing to be free, to have liberty, to be live unrestrained, and that natural inclination is not something a legislature cannot pass along that says to people you will not want to be free. And talking and about that. Oh, I'm sorry to interrupt you, sir. When you talk about no, that ahead. that liberty, uh, these architects of the independence, you know, weren't just, you know, incredibly smart, intelligent, intuitive. They're so brave because we talked about for that liberty, they risked so much. Uh, I want to just read a real quick passage of your book. Richard Henry Lee sought recognition from President Hancock. As he did so, Lee one last time reflected upon being hung, mutilated, burned, and beheaded, then put those thoughts aside in the knowledge that no other delegate was in a position to move the Continental Congress towards independence. He rose and placed before Congress the following resolution, resolved that these United Colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiances to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved. What did he risk, sir? Well, at that point in time, at that particular moment, he was committing treason against the king in a very, very public way. Nobody... Uh, and the Continental Congress, despite the fact that they were literally at war after Bunker Hill and Lexington and Concord, nobody would utter the word independence in public because that was committing treason against the king. And the penalty for committing treason against the king was fourfold. The first element of it was to be dragged through the streets and have your entrails um, cut out. But while you're still alive, then uh, you're supposed to be hung. But then you're supposed to be cut down before you died and the last thing to do uh for you uh, to you as a result of committing treason against the king was to have your head cut off and uh, i know you 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 guys are retired law enforcement and i've been a prosecutor and inside the justice system for 30 years and it's really it, we know that it's pretty rare that for anybody to get the biggest penalty allowed for the crime that they've committed, because sometimes the penalties are really, really harsh and sometimes, uh, and very seldom does somebody get the harshest penalty available. But in this situation, these guys actually knew and personally knew folks that in the aftermath of Bunker Hill had in fact had their heads cut off. One of the, uh, one of the fellows that's mentioned prominently in, in the book is a fellow by the name of Dr. Joseph Warren. Dr. Warren was, in fact, John Adams' personal physician. Besides being a John the Adams family's personal physician, he was also a brigadier general in the Massachusetts militia, and he was also a leader in the Massachusetts legislature. And in the aftermath of Bunker Hill, he, in fact, had his head cut off. So it's not like this was an imaginary uh, kind of uh, penalty that sat around in the lawn didn't didn't happen. Uh, these, uh, there, was, uh, there were uh, rebels, if you will, or patriots, depending whether you're English or American, what you would refer to these folks, but they, there were people who, in fact, had their heads cut off. Interesting little side story on that that's not in the book is uh, Dr. Warren's head and his body got separated, and it, when they eventually found the head, uh, Paul Revere, as we know, famous for his midnight ride, was also a silversmith, and among that, the things that he did was some dentistry. And he had, in fact, 
put uh, silver fillings in, uh, in Dr. Warren's teeth. And that's how Dr. Warren's head was identified by Paul Revere's fillings in the dental records that uh, Paul Revere kept on, uh, on Dr. Warren. And that was the first example, and this is kind of a law enforcement thing, but it was the first example in the whole entire history of the world of forensic dentistry. I, I love that. I That's love, outstanding. Yeah, you're talking two cops are just right now, you know, I, I got chills, the whole forensic aspect of that. Yeah. And there's so many neat backstories like that you just shared regarding Dr. Warren. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the city tavern? We always know, you know, we picture the uh, Second Continental Congress, you know, and, and the halls and this stately um, place in Philadelphia. But there's a lot of work that was done in a bar, was there not? Oh, yeah. Probably uh, John Adams was fond of saying that most of the work of the Continental Congress actually did get done in the city tavern in Philadelphia, which, by the way, uh, exists today. It uh, burned down in the 1970s and then was rebuilt from the insurance records. And at the tavern, they have recipes for beer uh, that uh, were the favorites of Thomas Jefferson and of George Washington uh, available. You can get George Washington's ale made to Washington's personal recipe at the City Tavern. Wow, what's the but name of the most, tavern? It's called the City Tavern. Sorry, but I'm going. I was, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. Shotgun. I'm running shotgun. I, I go. <laughs> yeah, it's called it's called the City Tavern. It's in uh, it's in Philadelphia. You can go there and uh, have dinner and drink Jefferson's beer and uh, Washington's ale. And it's a, it's a fabulous place. It almost feels ghostly. When I was, I actually had been there before I wrote this book. And when I painted the, when I was, when I was writing the scenes involving Jefferson and Adams, uh, negotiating the format for the Declaration of Independence, I referred uh, to some of the pictures that I'd taken at City Tavern. Uh, I know I do have uh, Jefferson walking down the street from Independence Hall to the tavern. And many, most of the delegates uh, would go there after, uh, after in between. City Tavern was, a, was and is a wonderful place in Philadelphia, and I would uh, encourage anybody that's in Philadelphia that's seeing the historical uh, sites to not miss uh, City Tavern as being part of the, uh, as part of their experience in, uh, in Philadelphia. You know, when thinking about Cheers, or everybody knows your name, uh, great bar, uh, iconic. Uh, we as, you know, citizens, I can speak for myself, I don't know about Jason, but, you know, the names that come to mind is Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, John Adams. They were real human beings, like you said in the beginning, uh, with frailties and, and so forth. What? Flaws. Thank you. They were human, human. beings. People yeah. forget that. And one of the things you wrote about in the book is how Benjamin Franklin had gout, real bad gout. And so he missed a lot of the stuff. And uh, how did it fall onto Thomas Jefferson to write this incredible uh, document that created our country? Well, in the first instance, it seemed like many people really didn't want to. Uh, you read uh, Richard Henry Lee's resolution. Um, one of the like a lot of governments uh, do after um, Richard Henry Lee made the resolution for independence, the first thing that the Second Continental Congress did was form uh, three committees. They decided, uh, and they tabled it because nobody else wanted to be on record, with the exception of John Adams, nobody else wanted to be on record as uh, going out on that uh, limb of treason with, uh, with Richard Henry Lee. So they put off a vote for a month and uh, formed three committees. One had to do with drafting a plan of government for governing the United Colonies. 
in the aftermath of independence. One had to do with creating a sort of a form treaty uh, because they would be seeking alliances with um, for other powers, uh, particularly Spain and France. And the third uh, committee that they created was to uh, write a declaration should they, in fact, uh, vote for independence. And Richard Henry Lee probably would have been one of the the prime uh, prime guy to uh, be recruited to write it for a couple of reasons, not the least of which is he proposed it. And I do discuss some of the politics in the book of what was going on, and they really needed somebody from Virginia, which was the largest colony at the time. And so they created a committee of five, and Thomas Jefferson took Richard Henry Lee's place because Richard Henry Lee went back to uh, Richmond, uh, or actually he went back to Williamsburg, Virginia, because his wife was uh, his wife was ill. And so they needed another Virginian on the on the committee. And the other four guys, one of them was Ben Franklin, who was extraordinarily ill with his gout. Uh, one of them was uh, John Adams, who was involved in almost everything. He was on about 30 committees uh, in the Second Continental Congress. He was involved in everything that was going on. The other uh, the other two guys were uh, from uh, New York and South Carolina, South Carolina respectively. And uh, Adams didn't think too highly of either of them. They put the guy in New York, from New York on there just to... Uh, just because they, again, a political uh, political statement that they wanted New York involved. Jefferson was kind of the odd man out. He was kind of left with the task, and Adams had to uh, actually flatter him into doing it. Nobody, <laughs> no, nobody really thought. Nobody really thought that it was going to be that big a deal. Uh, the, uh, the declaration, you know, just something to sort of justify what. Uh, what they were doing from the, the standpoint of uh, declaring independence, and I, so I, nobody really wanted the uh, nobody really wanted the job. And I Jefferson love it. Was so young; he was only thirty-three years old, uh, and so he was the youngest. Uh, he was one of the youngest guys there, and uh, the older guys were telling him. And he stood out, know, literally, and, didn't he? He actually physically stood out. Oh yeah, he was like six foot four, and Adams was like <laughs> five foot seven. Uh, and so when uh, when everybody was having meetings and things like that, he could get Adams' attention because he was because he was six foot four and he had uh, this flaming red hair. <laughs> and so uh, so he stood out for in a crowd. And but uh, Adams or Jefferson was kind of deferring to him, and this was in fact uh, after a, uh, after a meeting in the Congress and just before a uh, break at the city tavern, uh, Jefferson said to Adams, he said, you know, well, it's probably about time, you know, you're probably going to start drafting the declaration. And, uh, Adams said to Jefferson, he says, Oh no, I don't think, uh, I don't think so. I think, I think you're going to do it. And Jefferson, but why? He said, well, for a couple of reasons, one of which is, uh, you write them much better than I do. Uh, you're from Virginia, and we need that. I'm from Massachusetts, and they don't want everybody thinking that we're dragging everybody into the whole mess that's been going on in Massachusetts with Lexington, Concord, et cetera, et cetera. Besides all that, says you know, people uh, people think I'm a little bit obnoxious, and they like you. I love <laughs> so, it. I uh, love it. Went to his vanity. <laughs> there, in closing, yeah. there's two things I want to ask. One is if you could tell us uh, how you get your book and where it's available, as well as the other book, the uh, one that preceded this. And also, uh, tell me who and what did Thomas Jefferson invent? There's something he invented that you talk about in the book that I thought was hilarious when he's contemplating writing this independence. Well, actually, uh, something that everybody probably uses every day to this day. There never had been the equivalent of a swivel chair in the history of mankind. And Jefferson took some of the rollers off the windows uh, that 
used to you, that were used to raise the windows up and down, and he sawed apart the uh, seat of the chair from the base, installed the rollers on the bottom, and invented the swivel chair. <laughs> I and, love that story. Uh, so, so anybody that swivels in their chair in their office these I'm days. I'm doing it right now. <laughs> yeah, and Thomas how, Jefferson to thank for that. And how do we get your book, sir? Creating the Declaration of Independence is on Amazon.com, as is uh, the first book that preceded this, uh, Constitutional Soundbites, which is the 150 uh, questions and answers that covers every section of the Constitution from the preamble through Article 1, through Article 7, through the uh, first 10 amendments. This is sort of a, from the creation of the founding documents, it's sort of a three-act play. You have the Declaration of Independence, you have the Constitution, and then you have the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments. And that whole group is part of the founding. It's really kind of like a 15, 16-year process. And the only way you can really grasp it all is to kind of get the idea that it's a 15 or 16 year process. And so that kind of is gets covered in constitutional sound bites. And um, there's, like I said, there's 150 questions. It's, if I might, it's not bad to keep on the, on the sink uh, by the bathroom because you can open it up and read one or two of the items because it only takes two or three minutes and put it back down. You know, there's a lot of people that uh, get oh, intimidated by history or by thinking about the constitution and one of the one of the great things in the uh, in when i was writing that book was that one of my main editors was uh, my mom who just turned 90 and i would uh, write something and mom goes no that's too much like a lawyer dave you know? <laughs> i love moms <laughs> yeah yeah so my best editor for that was was mom because i wanted to write a book that was for everybody, not for uh, not for the legal profession. There's too much uh, there's too much of that going on, and it's just uh, and and if you think about the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, these documents were not written for lawyers. Thank they you. They were written to motivate people I love to go that. out and die for their country, to go out and die for their principles. They and were that's, debated in the taverns. That's the perfect way to end this uh, incredible guest segment sir i wish you the best of the fourth of july yeah i can't thank you enough that was outstanding and uh if you're free november 9th in chicago i'd love to meet you in person and you can come listen to somebody talk about everything to do with not the constitution and not uh being a lawyer if you want to take a little mental break from what you have to do every day i'd love to meet you (laughs) i hope that opportunity arises and we'll look forward to it and i'm uh so, so so blessed to have had the opportunity to talk to you and your audience. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Well, that wraps it up for this segment of Badge Boys. We'll be right back. More stories, inside guests, and true blue humor coming up on Badge Boys. We'll be back right after this. I remember the moment. I'll never forget that moment. As long as I live. As long as I live. Several of us were working to rescue a family. The house collapsed on top of the cellar door and trapped them. We had to use Humvees and heavy machinery to move massive trees and debris. We got them out. We helped a lot of people out. It felt good to know I could really make a difference. Because I'm a citizen soldier in the National Guard. Be there the moment your community needs you. Learn more at NationalGuard.com. Sponsored by the Arizona National Guard. Aired by the Arizona Broadcasters Association and this station. 
Move over, AZ. Arizona's move over law requires you to move over or slow down when you drive past any vehicle pulled over with flashing lights. Remember, every vehicle, every time. Move over, AZ. Sponsored by ADOT in partnership with the Arizona Broadcasters Association and this station. You're listening to Badge Boys with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Now, back to the Badge Boys. Welcome back to Badge Boys, everybody. Outstanding segment with David Sestokas. Darren, thank you so much for bringing him on. And now we are on to segment number two, which I think every week when I listen to our show playback, we always say this is our favorite segment. Every segment seems to be our favorite, but I do. <laughs> They're I all do, good. I do love Cop Talk. And for those of you out there listening, something you may not know, Darren and I will go the entire week in between shows and not discuss our topics. We want them to be fresh. We want them to be organic from our hearts, from our minds. And this is a great example of that. We, it, it, it was 20 minutes ago when we said, here's what our hot topic is going to be. And it is a very hot topic right now. And it is the use of body cameras on police officers throughout this country. It is an extremely hot topic in Phoenix right now because, as everybody knows, across the country we're dealing with a lot here with the recent shoplifting incident that escalated into not necessarily a improper use of force, but uh, words that people are not happy with, and it has divided, of course, uh, lines not only racially but uh, just between community and police, and one of the things Chief Jerry Williams has done in response, and I absolutely love Chief Jerry Williams of the Phoenix Police Department. I think she is doing an incredible job. But one of the things that she has rolled out, there's been many city council meetings recently, uh, and to the city council's credit, which I'm not one to uh, give politicians a lot of credit. I don't care which side of the aisle you're on. I give them credit because they've given a voice to both the dissenters and the haters of the police, and they've also given a voice to those who support police. But just last night here in Phoenix, we had another one. And uh, again, to her credit, Chief Williams got up there in her uniform, sat at the table and said, here's what we are going to do to better our department, to better our officers. And one of the things is body cams. They are speeding up the rollout of body cameras they're going to get them on everybody from what i understood on the news last night by the end of august so that's what we're going to talk about is the use of body cameras and uh the good the bad and the ugly that comes along with that so darren uh without having talked about this what are your thoughts on body cams uh first i love body cams and there's pros and cons and as a uh, investigator for gosh 20 years there's some problems that the public isn't aware of as it relates to body cam because that's evidence every time there's something out there in public it's evidence and as evidence it has to be controlled it has to be um there has to be a chain of custody to it you have to have a complete set of policy and procedures as it relates to even just the um, public information act which is a federal act that demands that you provide information to the public when requested so there's a lot that has to go into it but i will say this you talked about that those that are pro and con and, and so forth. And those who are look at that viral video that went nationally and they there's there's the haters. That's what they are. They they absolutely, you know And this was you, not on body cam though. This is part of the problem. This was a cell phone 
video that was not caught right. start to finish. So in this situation, a body cam on those officers might have helped a lot change the, the perception or the dialogue because you didn't have just a 28-second cell phone video by a random civilian you had you would have had start to finish and they the officers did not have that and that was huge i believe i really do i think that if we had video that <clears throat> would have immediately went out the same time the uh, video of the and we'll call it um tough jargon that the officers use that was very difficult to hear and understand especially from a layman somebody that isn't aware that by by law, uh, Tennessee versus Gardner in 1985 that came on when I came on basically says that you can't do this, you can't do this uh, on a fleeing criminal. And this was a, a, a subject that was wanted for the driver specifically, was wanted for the shoplifting and leaving the scene. And you, you cannot shoot a fleeing felon. You can't shoot someone who's just leaving the scene of a crime. You can threaten that, though. So when people hear this dialogue of him making these threats, Legally speaking, he can do that. It's a bluff. The officer knows it's a bluff. The other officers know it's a bluff. But the citizens don't. And the citizens listening to this don't know that. So when you hear an officer threatening violence, it's scary. So I get that. So to your point, Jason, I think you're 100% right. Had the body cameras in this situation would have depicted the entirety of the of the situation totality right. of the events and we would have seen what the officers the officer trying to get this vehicle to stop that's huge because that goes to why he was upset and his emotions probably carried too far i i, I personally when i was looking at it, thought it was too much i thought it was oh um, yeah it was, it was very difficult to watch it was well, it was, it was. and so if it's difficult for me as someone who spent you know 30 years doing this job i can i can only imagine how difficult it would be to, to the ever citizen listening to it, knowing that guns are being pointed at a, at a group of, um, you know, kids and this pregnant woman. I, I get that. So, yeah. yeah, to your point with the body cameras, this was a situation where the body camera absolutely would have helped these officers. It would have probably uh, calmed the community in regards to what they saw because then they have the totality of uh, the events to know why this probably went too far um, based on the, the catalyst was of the driver. Well, and I'll give two examples to, when I say pros and cons, I don't think there are any cons as far as why the public or the courts should know exactly what, I agree with that. what took place. There's, I agree there's with that. The, the Transparency. Day, the, the, the days of, yes, the days of hearsay and he said, she said stuff is gone and it should be gone. And so, you know, like you, I know you did this for a very long time. I have not been a cop in uh, I retired in 2006, so I will be the first one to say I do not know exactly what it's like to be on the streets right now. I, I think it's, uh, you know, 20, 30 years ago when you needed to do investigation, when you threatened violence, when I you jumped had on to my do, horse and I rode out. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but people were much more compliant, especially innocent people. Thank you. The people who had something to hide, had some warrants, didn't want to go back to jail. They were the ones that would give you the resistance. In today's world, with what's going on in politics and media, you're getting, I think officers are getting a lot more resistance from just everyday good people, and it escalates into problems that I agree. it shouldn't. I but agree. Here, here's two examples of why I say pros and cons on the side of law enforcement. On the pro side, and I don't know if you saw this, but recently there was an incident in Los Angeles. 
and it was about three or four months ago, there was a shooting. Two cops exited their car, opened fire. They killed this guy dead on the street in broad daylight, and the family is suing L.A. for, of course, an ungodly amount of money because they shot somebody that they, they shouldn't have. And as we spoke about last week, you cannot talk about this. The officers, the department, the city cannot discuss this. They cannot defend themselves until it comes out. Well, a week ago, guess what was released? The body cam footage. And I don't know what the haters and police people who have had bad run-ins or think about police officers, but when these officers got this call, they're not driving to the scene saying, we got to find this guy. I'm going to kill this guy. There are no... 99.9% of officers do not speak like this. They are there for the safety of the public, safety of themselves, their partners. They get on the scene, they see this guy, and as soon as the guy sees them, he opens fire on them. There are bullet holes in the police car. They jump out of their car, and what do you do in response to deadly force? You return. You protect yourself. You protect yourself. They returned deadly force. They stopped the threat. That's something other people don't always understand. That is what you are trained to do. You are there to stop the threat. And, of course, in the background, you're hearing somebody else screaming, that's my brother. Uh, and, and, you know, and it sounds horrible, but you can clearly see on the video that the officers' lives were in danger. They might not have gone home that night, and they responded. They reacted. It's not like they jumped out of their car and shot this person. So in that situation, I think the city of L.A. is going to come out victorious in the lawsuit. But also it gives people, if you have an objective mind, watch the video. I'm not not happy that the guy's dead. I'm not happy. Everybody has somebody that loves them and cares about them. And death is a terrible thing. But if you watch that video, you will clearly see the job's the cops did their job in the way that they were supposed to. Now flip it to the the con side of what I would say for law enforcement. And there's been a couple situations here, but I'll bring up the one that Mesa PD dealt with. Um, God, it might be two years ago now where uh, there's a lot of officers on scene in the hotel room with the uh, gentleman from Texas. The, um, I can't remember if he was here to sell pesticides or landscaping equipment. And, an officer shot and killed him. And the officer ended up going to trial. He, he was charged with the murder of this gentleman. And when I watched that video, again, you, I wasn't in the courtroom. I didn't hear every single piece of evidence. I was not on the call with these officers. So uh, having been a police officer for a while, uh, you'll hear a lot, a lot of times officers will just simply say, look, I wasn't there, so I'm, I can't speak to it. And, but when you watch that video, I think it's very telling, but I also believe in it. It is a, it is a positive thing. So I think body cameras are, are an outstanding tool for law enforcement and for the public. You know, as to your point regarding the public, there's no downside. To the public, it's transparency. There's no downside. I get that. As far as the law enforcement, you're right. It can help officers. But you just gave the perfect example of why body camera, depending on how you use it, can be a bad thing. Because it can be 
just a little piece. I'm holding up my finger showing like an inch sign. Yes. It can just show you that much, which could be um, sensationalizing the point of a horrible situation. You're seeing the worst of the worst. Whereas if the body camera can show a 360 degree, which they can't, then you see all perspectives of the officer. See, for example, in the case that you're talking about in Mesa, leading up to that, they, they were responding to a call of a subject with a gun. Yes. And that, in that um, not apartment, uh, motel. Motel. And so now they have their own, you know, knowledge base that they're dealing with. Having yes. been in, having been shot at three times in my career, only being able to return fire once, I can tell you it's a scary thing knowing that I can't shoot back at a bad guy who's shooting me because the backdrop is unsafe because I'm, I'm accountable for every single bullet. So when there's three or four of us there, I don't know if officer one, two, or three are even capable of shooting this bad guy. So those are the things that go in a police officer's mind that cannot be captured by a body camera, especially a body camera that's only showing a small amount of video. So now we get to the point, well, that's easy correction. We just make the body camera 100% of the time. Here's the huge problem with that. As you know, Jason, officers, when we go from call to call to call, we need to vent. We have that trust, that family, sure. where we can vent, even if it's just venting for sake of venting. You know, sure. we have that dead child from the swimming pool or some person who is extremely obnoxious that we have the code Adam Henry um, that we give them. You know, we can talk freely amongst ourselves, me and you, with a body camera going on 100% of the time, you can't do that. Furthermore, you may get in a situation where you're talking to a citizen. This citizen is asking you for some, you know, not knowing there's a body camera recording their every moment, every second, every statement, as they're maybe giving you some witness information that they would like to keep privileged. So there's a, it's unfortunately, there's not that perfect fix to make body cameras 100% of the time. So with you, I agree. In law enforcement, there's, there's definitely a pro and a con that has to be weighed. And the policy is everything on that. How, how there has to be, in my opinion, there has to be an element where the officer can control it. But when you do that, then you lack the transparency. Yes. And that is where I don't know if there ever will be a true, genuine resolution. No, there probably won't be. And you hear, you've already heard it countless times. There'll be a situation and they'll report the officer neglected or forgot to turn on. And makes them sound guilty. Or in the middle of the thing, it, it goes faulty and it goes out. Or if you're in the middle of a fight, I mean, and it gets knocked off. Sure. I mean, there's, (laughs) there's just a ton of, thank you, uh, of different things that can happen. But, I, I kind of equate it to now that I am have been off the streets for as long as I have, and, and I brought it up last week on the show. Uh, I talked about how people love Live PD, and I think Live PD is pretty accurate. Maybe they edit a few things out. Maybe they uh, shorten things, but you see and hear what officers say when they're alone in their car, when they first hear the call, the details, and then you see how they conduct themselves on those calls. And I think that body cameras will do the same thing. It is just a live version. And as time goes by, right now we are in, you've heard me say it before, a severe down cycle on how people feel about law enforcement. And I think the more body cameras are used and the more these cases are transparent, 
and put out there for the public to see, they're going to quickly change their minds on like, well, geez, look what this person did. Look what they said. And we still have the rule of law. Officers are there to do a job. And when they are in the middle of an investigation, you are required by law to everything from provide ID to be compliant and let that go. And if you're, if your first reaction is to verbally or threaten physical assault against an officer, if your first reaction is to flee the scene, do you not, if somebody did that to you, you would escalate also. Even if you weren't a sworn police officer, you hadn't been through the training that we've been through, you would escalate. People need to understand that. And I, and I think it's going to be great. I just hope that as time goes by, people will show the media and politicians will actually look at the body cam footage in its entirety. Uh, I won't name names because I'll probably get in trouble. But one of the things that drives me crazy, there's an activist here in Phoenix who <laughs> just... We all laugh. <laughs> just hmm. and hates, I'm not psychic. hates, hates, hates police officers. And I would, that's, I and would that, agree. And that's fine. About a year and a half ago, this gentleman was invited by... Maricopa County, Sheriff, Maricopa County Sheriff's to go down and participate in one of our shooter don't shoot scenarios. Shooter don't shoot scenarios. And a shooter don't shoot scenario, these things are incredibly real. They are incredibly well scripted. Produced. And you do not know what's coming on. And if memory serves me correctly, they allowed him to do three and he failed two of them miserably he <laughs> killed an unarmed person <laughs> he killed two people that he should not have killed and he spent about three minutes acknowledging wow that was nothing like i thought it would be that was very difficult i made a mistake and after that three minutes he went back to okay every one of you is out there to hurt people especially minorities cops suck and i hate you and that is the kind of stuff that i'm hoping that the body cameras will will shut those people up because you don't just get to rail when you don't know the the true how it unfolded yeah you know what i, I love is we've done this complete topic and i'm going to bring it back home to our friend david sistokis yes because he talks about the uh Declaration of Independence and how these forefathers created this great document that keep our country together. One thing that's so great about our country is the fact that we can have these differences. I, I have no problem with the watchdog groups out there. I have, in fact, Not at all. I, I applaud you because there's no cop that no one hates a bad cop more than a cop. That's, that's a fact. That is, a that is fact. just a fact. When you tarnish that badge, we have no time for you. Throw the book at that person. Yes. Um, so I love the fact that, and we were both in the military, we both served our country to keep people free and have those freedoms where they yes. can talk trash against yes. us. Um, and I'll applaud you and I'll give you the liberty to do that and I'll die to allow you that right. But I think when they do more and more of the talk and these body cameras show that it's just hate for the purpose of hating, it goes to what we do which is love of the community and i think that is seen with these body cams so i give a big thumbs up to body cameras i just believe policy and we have to understand this this um genie out of the bottle technology it's out there we're gonna have to deal with it sure. we need to wrap our heads around the policy
Well, innocent until proven guilty needs to apply to everybody. It's not, and these activists are the first people to to jump on the, you know, the the suspects or the people who have been arrested that they're innocent until proven guilty, no matter what anybody says. But yet, with police officers, you are guilty uh, right away. As soon as the news headline is "police shoot and kill suspect at this address," these activists right away lose their minds and say. That officer, uh, you know, is guilty, did this, did that, and that just can't be the case. It's got to be a little bit better balanced. So with that, we will uh, head to a break. Thank you all. That was a great topic, Darren. I, get, I know, man, right? I get, uh, I get fired up on this, this stuff. Uh, so we will be right back with uh, a heroic headline and, of course, one of Darren's stupid suspect stories that uh, I, I always wait to find out I always wait to find out what they are so uh, come back in just a couple minutes thanks everybody more stories inside guests and true blue humor coming up on batch boys we'll be back right after this I remember the moment, remember the moment. I'll never forget that moment as long as I live as long as I live Several of us were working to rescue a family. The house collapsed on top of the cellar door and trapped them. We had to use Humvees and heavy machinery to move massive trees and debris. We got them out. We helped a lot of people out. It felt good to know I could really make a difference. Because I'm a citizen soldier in the National Guard. Be there the moment your community needs you. Learn more at NationalGuard.com. Sponsored by the Arizona National Guard. Aired by the Arizona Broadcasters Association and this station. Move over, AZ. Arizona's move over law requires you to move over or slow down when you drive past any vehicle pulled over with flashing lights. Remember, every vehicle, every time. Move over, AZ. Sponsored by ADOT in partnership with the Arizona Broadcasters Association and this station. You're listening to Batch Boys with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Now, back to the Batch Boys. You know, that was a great cop talk segment. Uh, I really enjoyed listening to Jason talking about, you know, the pros and cons from his vantage point. And again, we had not talked about that. Uh, so it was kind of neat, just kind of, you know, very impromptu. Uh, the segment before that, the guest, uh, the writer of Creating the Declaration of Independence, David Shostokis. Uh, such a great book. I want to put another plug out for that. And I want to read real quick before I hand this off to Jason for his heroic headlines. A, uh, one of the things that the uh, uh, author was talking about regarding the punishment, this is what our forefathers risked. The punishment of high treason in general is very solemn and terrible. One, that the offender be drawn to the gallows and not be carried or walk, though usually a sledge or hurdle is allowed to preserve the offender from the extreme torment of being dragged on the ground or pavement, which is a complete contrast to point two. Two, that he be hanged by the neck and then cut down alive. Three, that his entrails be taken out and burned while he is yet alive. And four, that his head be cut off. And five, that his body be divided into four parts. And six, that his head and quarters be at the king's disposal. That's what our forefathers risked to give us independence. And to that high note, Jason, your heroic headline. uh, Wow. That's Pretty amazing. And truly, I am astounded every day at, at how incredibly intelligent and the way they could see that the words that they wrote would last hundreds and hundreds of years. I mean, there's still a Supreme Court in place that all they do is strictly adhere to the rules of the Constitution. That's, that's just amazing. I'm with you, brother. That's, that's amazing. So this week's, actually, we are going to do two 
And I will start with this one because I have uh, been humbled over the years to have had the term hero spoken to me a few times. And let me tell you, what I'm about to read to you, I would never, ever do this. <laughs> ever. You're my hero, brother. I would never do this. No, no, you no. You might for me. No, no. <laughs> After you hear this story, you will understand that I am not a hero at all. <laughs> this story takes place in Lebanon Junction, Kentucky. It is not every day that drivers see a police officer in the street directing traffic in a pink tutu. But it happened not too long ago. Lebanon Junction Police Chief Terry Phillips walks the halls of the city's elementary school every day saying hello to the students who eagerly respond in turn. Before and after school, on this particular Wednesday, Chief Phillips directed the traffic in the tutu attire because of what he told the school's archery class the previous month. If the students could raise their target score up to 200, he would wear a dress or a tutu while outside directing traffic. They did, and he followed through. Quote, I gave them my word, and here I am, Chief Phillips said, standing near the road while adjusting his pink headband. It's embarrassing, but it's a lot of fun. I am working with the kids here. Usually one of the boys in blue, Phillips was pretty in his pink tutu. A family friend suggested the tutu and a last minute accessory for him and Bullet County Constable Larry Watkins. She said, well, I will get you a tutu made. And the chief laughed. I thought it was a joke, but I didn't know nothing about the pink headband. Most of those who drove past honked their horns, waved, or took photos. Phillips even got a few whistles for good measure. The costume helped create a bond and trust between Phillips and the students, one that he hopes will continue into the future. The kids look up to us, and they give us a lot of respect, he said, and we just want to see them achieve well and move forward. It was the smiles on the faces of the students and parents from Phillips that made his job worth it, and it doesn't hurt to have a little fun in the process. Look at what a difference that this guy made. Not only is he the chief of police, but he inspired them to achieve something that they had not achieved before with a score. He followed through on a promise, and to his credit, the guy wore a pink tutu and a headband and directed traffic. That's quite embarrassing and humiliating, so he is without a doubt my hero for this week. Way to go, the chief of Lebanon, Kentucky. Kudos, buddy. Kudos. In the interest of Independence Day, 4th of July, uh, and celebrating this great country, I am going to turn over our second, which we never do, a second (laughs) heroic story to our wonderful producer, Robin. So Rocket Robin, what do you got? Well, you know, I'm really surprised that we didn't remember this right off the bat. But being that it's Independence Day coming up this week, there were two Phoenix police officers that did something so amazing that it was covered by the media. And it was really cool. These two officers, Mario Lazoya and Matt Morgan, they were on patrol last week. And they saw that this beautiful American flag mural that had been painted on the wall of a community here locally had been defaced 
with political garbage that was very demeaning, disgusting, bad words. I'm not even going to say what the words are. But these two guys decided, well, guess what we're going to do? We're going to go buy some paint. We're going to fix this. So it was 105 degrees outside. These two guys got together in their uniforms in the blazing Phoenix heat. I don't care if it's 105 or 95. If you're out there right by the pavement by a block wall, I used to do landscaping. I get how hot it is. You're talking 130, 140 degrees in your uniform. And with your bulletproof vest, it's, it's ungodly. These two guys got out there. They cleaned up the debris and repainted this flag for the community. People in the community came out, gave them water, applauded them, honked their horns when they were going by. And neither one of these officers knew the history of the mural till afterwards. They learned that it had been painted a day after 9-11 happened. Now, having served in the U.S. Marine Corps from 99 to 2004, Lazoya said the American flag means everything to him. He served during Operation Iraqi Freedom and Operation Enduring Freedom. So for these two Phoenix police officers, Mario Lazoya and Matt Morgan, you are our heroes here in our community and across the U.S. Happy Independence Day from all of us to you. You know, I love that. We have these heroes when the pink tutu with a paintbrush, uh, but it's their acts that they're this doing. This is what the officers heart. do every day. Thank you. Every day, Without the fanfare, without wanting yes, the fanfare. No, they don't. We're going to give it to them. Though. And as great as you guys lift us up, uh, Jason and, <laughs> oh, here we and go. my Rock and Robin, you lift us up. And now I'm going to take us down to the bowels of humanity. Please do. Uh, with our next stupid suspect. And by the way, I forgo a couple of uh, stupid suspects because these stories were just so good. So I'm just going to do one because there's unfortunately no limit to stupid suspect <laughs> stories. On Sunday, three New York Transit police officers were visiting a Baskin Robbins and a donut shop on Surf Avenue in Coney Island. When you think Coney Island, you know, you think of all these great things and good people and lots of fun and donut stores. For those of you who don't know, the Baskin Robbins is basically a fast food restaurant that serves ice cream, goodies and so forth. And it's also combined with a Dunkin Donuts. It just so happens that while these three officers were satisfying their cravings for something sweet, a man who walked into the store to adjust his pants, because you know how the bad guys love to have the, uh, uh, what's that called, hang where they have it down to their knees. Oh, it's, uh, like, it's like what the, the young kids do. They show their underwear. Yeah, exactly. Okay, there's a word for it. I'm, I'm just not hip. <laughs> I'm just either. No pun intended, but I'm not hip. Uh, and when he did adjust his, uh, his, his sagging, that's it, his sagging pants, a gun fell out. And this gun was loaded in front of three cops, apparently not even noticing this loaded gun had fallen out on the floor. The man continued to stumble in his drunken stupidity around the restaurant. Uh, that's when the officer, seeing the gun on the ground, came quickly to the rescue of the other people in the, in the shop. They grabbed the gun. They secured it. Uh, the man they found was a convicted felon. Can't have a gun if you're a convicted felon. Uh, he was arrested immediately. Uh, after the strange sequence of events, uh, the NYPD Transit Police tweeted, Quote, seriously, this actually happened. Um, they went on to say, since we're so glad no one was hurt and the officers took the gun and a repeated felon is off the street. This one is pretty laughable. This is their words, by the way. This is pretty laughable. What we guess the suspect won't be laughing when he goes back to prison. So that is my stupid suspect story for today. That's 
uh, pretty good. You can't have a gun if you're a convicted felon. Yeah, go go <laughs> figure. That, that, yeah, I, I that, guess that's that, a law. Is that new or something? Yeah, I, get, I, he, I, I didn't realize that. This poor gentleman didn't know that in his drunken stupidity. Uh, yeah, well, apparently. That's apparently. And he was stupid enough to go into a donut shop. Don't you know that's where we are? Hello? <laughs> that's where we yeah. go? Yes, if you're going to wear that uniform, I love donuts, and I <laughs> I had no problem going and getting fresh ones every night with a cup of coffee at one a.m. So if you're um, a bad guy and you I have a loaded even, gun and you're convicted, yeah, don't, phone, go, don't to, go to a donut store. Donut yeah, come thank on. you. Come on, come on. <laughs> and now I'm going to hand it over to uh, Jason for truly my favorite favorite minutes of the entire show. It's the ins- inspirational message from Jason. Our close. All right. Thank you, Darren. This week, I would like to share a uh, little bit of background on myself that uh, uh, people who have heard me speak, I do share this in my my speeches. uh, And it's something that I posted on uh, my social media. I always keep things as current as I can. There's nothing as powerful as a made up mind. In the clip yesterday, I talked about my handicap, my golf handicap. I have no other handicaps. At the time of my accident, I was a two. This is a game that I could really play, something that I love to do. I was out there every week with my, my dad. This is the one thing after my injuries that I gave up on, the one thing that I said. I mean, I was determined to go back to work. I was determined to overcome and accomplish anything. Golf was the one thing that I said, just forget about it. You're never going to hold on to a skinny little golf club with your eyesight. You're never going to see a ball flying through the blue sky. Well, it turned out that those were not the problems. My attitude about it was the problem. So then I started to work at it around the time I retired, practiced, had great support from uh, Ping, which is based right here in Phoenix, outstanding company. And I did indeed get to playing again. And I actually got my handicap back down to a one. Could play golf better after the accident than I could before. And I had that handicap for about a five year span. In the interest of transparency, currently, according to the USDA, my handicap is a 5.6, which is not too shabby, but I don't want people thinking out there that I'm still a one. I don't practice. Well, you are getting older. I don't, well, and I, that's true, but I don't (laughs) practice or play nearly as much as I used to uh, just with priorities. But the point is, if you believe in yourself, if you work at something, if you're surrounded by people who love and support you, there is absolutely nothing that you can't accomplish and on a personal side for curiosity's sake my favorite course in the world is torrey pines in san diego my favorite hole is the third hole at the south course and my dream which i tend to dream big is before i die on my bucket list i am going to play augusta national where the masters is i've been to the masters but obviously getting to play there is (laughs) A very rare thing. The point is, believe in yourself. Don't give up. The problem is not the problem. It's your attitude about the problem. Believe in yourself. You can accomplish anything. Thank you, everybody. Darren, Robin, outstanding show. I wish we could do this every single day. Right. But you know what? We will be back here in seven days with an outstanding guest next week that I cannot wait for her to we get here. Her. Oh my God, I cannot wait for her to get here and I'm not going to spoil it. So God bless you, everybody. Happy Independence Day. Happy Fourth of July. Celebrate our founding fathers. Celebrate safely. Uh, watch some fireworks and enjoy your family. Thanks, everybody. Batch Boys. Thanks for listening to Batch Boys. <laughs> Story.
stories, insights, guests, and true blue humor with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Batch Boys, heard weekly and worldwide on Star Worldwide Networks and all mobile devices. Badge Boys.